The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. I've got some fun facts here for you. So every 60 seconds, I've got a point to these fun facts. Every 60 seconds, there's roughly 3 million Google searches worldwide. Every day, 4.3 billion searches. That means every year there's roughly one and a half trillion Google searches. That's a lot of zeros. I don't even know if I could write that out on paper. But like I said, I'm not really much of a numbers guy. I don't get off on statistics like this too much. But one thing that I do find interesting about these numbers is the, the enormous volume of questions that are being asked, right? Google is, is like the mecca of where you go to get answers for your questions. Uh, where's the closest Chipotle, right? Where, how do I get to uh, Chicago? Whatever the question is, Google has the answer. And, and these questions flow all around us, right? We've got tons of questions uh, coming our way. And some, some questions are, are small questions that are, don't require a ton of thought, right? You go to the coffee shop, you want room for cream, you typically have an answer right away, it's yes or no. Uh, you go to Chipotle, uh, you want guac for extra, I'm like, heck yeah, I want guac for extra. Uh, so these are questions that we don't require a lot of thought, but there are other questions that, redu- that do require uh, uh, some thought, right? These are the big questions, like um, do, I, do I put my kid in public, private, or homeschool them? Um, do I, after high school, do I enter the workforce or do I go to college? Um, do I, um, oh, the big one, the big question, will you marry me, right? Will you marry this person? These are big questions that require, uh, hopefully some thought, right? You're hopefully you're thinking about it before you commit to marrying someone. Um, but they require thought because we got to weigh, um, we got to weigh the options, consider the implications of these decisions. We need to, to make an informed decision because the way that we answer these questions will determine the way that we live our lives. And today's passage is going to bring us, uh, we're going to see the disciples get asked the biggest, most important question that they'll ever ask in their entire lives. And in fact, it's, it's the biggest and most important question any of us will answer in our entire lives. And that is when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Right? These, the, the answer to our question will determine three things, and, and we'll unpack this as we go. One is, if, if I'm capable of changing, right? the second one is, will determine who I worship, and the third one will determine how I live. Right? Will I live the best life? So if you want to flip to your, in your Bibles or your Bible app, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and while you're doing that, um, for those of you who are just joining us, I want to kind of give you a little bit of context Um, We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through Mark's gospel. And Mark has been writing down everything that he knows about Jesus, but all this stuff is coming through the lens of Peter, as Peter's been walking with Jesus throughout his ministry. 
And one thing that we've seen from the beginning is that Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. Right on the, at the get-go, he says, this is why I've come, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. But, but as, we, as Mark keeps writing, what we see is that Jesus isn't just talking about the kingdom of God. He's showing what the kingdom of God will look like. He's giving us little, little glimpses into the kingdom of God. And, he's been, and as he does that, he's been showing us uh, a couple of things. One... That in the kingdom of God, there's physical renewal. Like things will change physically where the the deaf will be able to hear, the blind can see, um, the dead will be raised. Um, Another thing we see is that there's social renewal, social change, where the the people who have power that are oppressing others or using their power um, for their own gain, they'll be overthrown. And then uh, the outcasts and the marginalized, they'll be welcomed back into society. So we see social change. And, and what, what else we see is we see spiritual change, that, that people are being changed in the heart. And we see that as Jesus is going and he's proclaiming the good news, he's talking about the gospel, and, and people are seeing this light that he's bringing into the world. He's, he's pushing back the darkness, he's casting out demons, and everywhere he goes, every little village where he does healings and and preaches. What we're seeing is these little pockets of renewal, of spiritual renewal. So we've been seeing Jesus do that. And as we continue into Mark's gospel, we'll continue to see these things. But but Jesus's focus is going to change from talking and showing us what the kingdom looks like to telling us what it's going to take to bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. And one of the things that, that, that makes this clear is that throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, there's this phrase that keeps popping up. And we'll see it about, I think it's almost a dozen times over the next four chapters. And that phrase is on the way. We see that Jesus is on the way to something. And spoiler alert, he's on the way to the cross. And he knows it. And he's trying to tell his disciples um, where he's headed. But before, before he starts sharing all these details with his disciples, he needs to, to have them answer this question because this is, this is the question, the answer to this question is the key that makes sense of everything about Jesus from here on out. So this is where we're at, verse 27. So if you turn there with me, we'll take a look here. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked, there's that, there's that, that phrase, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, we see the big question. It's out on the table. Before we get to the big question, I want to point out one thing. And it's, it's really subtle, um, but it's very important for understanding the way in which Jesus made disciples, the context in which Jesus made disciples. And, and it's in that, that phrase, on the way. Jesus is making disciples right there in the ordinary life. From moving from point A to point B, Jesus is forming his disciples, making them. It's not in a classroom. It's not in a program. It's not on a special day during a special hour. It's in the normal, everyday life. And so this this tells us one thing, that discipleship is more than just doing spiritual things together. Right? It's more than, than getting together for a prayer group or a Bible study. It's more than a, a prayer walk or a revival meeting or whatever it may be. And it's more than just gathering together. It's more than, more, discipleship is more than just gathering for Sunday mornings. It's more than meeting uh, during the week for a missional community. It includes those things, but it goes far beyond that. And what Jesus shows us is that it includes us, utilizing the regular routines, the regular rhythms in all of life as opportunities to, to grow as a disciple, to follow Jesus in all of life. And, and what he's doing here, this is an echo of Deuteronomy 6. If you want to throw that, that up on the screen here. And what Deuteronomy 6 says is God cont- 
God commanding the Israelites to train their kids, to teach their kids about God and what he's done in all of life. Using, um, he talks about while you're on the way, while you're sitting, while you're eating, while you're sleeping, and when you wake up. These are the opportunities that we have for discipleship, right? Parents, this is, this is what it looks like to train our kids, to use these moments as an opportunity to shape them and to, to point them to Jesus but this goes beyond the household and it goes into the church, right? This, this sort of mentality of, of using all of life to help us grow as disciples is for our missional communities and our fight clubs. Using these opportunities to help point us to Jesus. We're supposed to share life together, even the dull moments, because these are opportunities for discipleship. So this means we open up our homes we share our space, we share our time, we share our resources, we go on bike rides and walks together, we celebrate together, we watch movies together, we go out to eat together, we, all, we do all of these things, the normal routines of life, we do, do them together because they're opportunities for discipleship, for, for growing our hearts and our affections and making us look more like Jesus. Now, this has to be this way because if you and I sit down for coffee, like one hour a week, we meet up, say, hey, this, we're going to do a discipleship group. You and I sit down for coffee. You might ask me, Sam, how's your marriage going? And I could probably shoot back like, you won't believe how great it is, right? It's, things are going so well. Um, I feel like I'm just laying my life down for my wife. She, she's honoring me and respecting me. Things are going great. I think I'm going to start writing a book about it. Um, and I can give you that answer, and that might be partially true, but I could also be feeding you a big fat lie, right? Things at home might not really be that great. And so it takes this entering each other's life to see those moments where we're not acting and living in step with the gospel. So it might take you hanging out at my house to say, hey, Sam, I've noticed, I've noticed that uh, you get really impatient with your wife sometimes. Like you... You know, things don't go your way, and you get short-tempered, and you get snippy, and, and it, you say, hey, Sam, I don't think you're, you're doing a good job of loving your wife. <sighs> right? <laughs> Who are you to tell me? But this is what discipleship looks like, is, is putting all of our life under the lordship of Christ, looking like Jesus in every area. So it takes those times uh, of everyday life together for you to see the places where I'm falling short of the gospel and living in step with the gospel, but it's also an invitation for you to, to show me what Jesus is like, to, to remind me of the gospel and say, hey, Sam, do you remember how Jesus is patient with you when you're being a fool? You remember how forbearing he was with you? Do you remember how he laid his life down? And these are opportunities for me to, remind, to, to be reminded of the gospel and have my heart changed by that. And then my, my life will reflect that as well. So this is why it's important for us to open up our lives so that we can grow in the gospel together. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Uh, so it's in this daily routine, the daily rhythm of just walking around where Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? Right, that's the question. And he's asking what this question means is, who do the crowds, who do the outsiders, who do the people outside of my disciples and our circle, who are they saying that I am? And they respond in verse 28. John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say other prophets. Right? And, and what the crowds are saying is that Jesus, well, he looks like a prophet, right? John the Baptist was a prophet saying, prepare the ways of the Lord. Elijah was a prophet that was calling Israel back to faithfulness and all the other prophets, same thing, calling people back to the Lord. And, and they see Jesus 
um, out on the hillsides. They see him uh, doing, doing life with people, but also preaching to the world that come back to God, come back to the Father, come into the kingdom of God. And so this makes sense. They see him as this prophet. And, and, and there's good reason to see this too, because historically, since Moses, God has been, pro- been promising a new prophet, a new and better prophet. Acts, Acts 3, 22 refers to this prophet as the one who speaks for God and everyone listens to him. And so people are seeing this prophet, seeing Jesus on the hillside and everybody's listening. Thousands of people are coming to hear him. And so they say that well, Jesus must be a prophet. But if we were to ask our culture, we were to ask the crowds who Jesus is, who they say Jesus is today, I'm certain we would get a very, very different answer, right? There are very few people outside of the church who would actually say that Jesus is a truth speaker, right? Because that's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, that that speaks as God's mouthpiece, speaks God's message to God's people. But our culture doesn't, doesn't really see Jesus that way, and I think that's evident in last week's Supreme Court ruling and the social media hype that, uh, that followed concerning the legitimacy, legitimacy of same-sex marriage, right? People don't really like what Jesus has to say about this in Matthew 19, where it says, God from the beginning made male and female, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and he shall cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus defines marriage as, but people aren't very quick to hold on to that truth. But it's not just marriage where there's a rub between cultural truth and Jesus's truth. Like, it's not just marriage. It happens... Um, what well, happens in the question, like, how do I become great? Like, what does it mean to become great? Culture tells us to, to fight and claw our way to the top. Knock people over. Get them out of our way. Do whatever it takes to make yourself look good. But, but what Jesus says about being great is, is the complete opposite. Jesus says, if you want to really become great, you have to become the least of these. You have to become, you got to be humble. You've, you've got to set your priorities, your life aside, and you have to assume the role of a servant. You have to lay your life down for others. And then, and only then, is when you'll become great. But what about money? Culture says the more money you have, the happier you'll be, right? The more that I have, the bigger my bank account, the bigger my retirement account, the happier I'll be. But Jesus actually tells us something completely different. He says, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's more blessed to give away than to keep for yourself right? These are truths that oppose each other. Even with, when it comes to kids, culture will look at kids and be like, yeah, I like your Facebook pictures. All your kids are cute, but kids aren't really for me because, well, they keep me from living the life that I want to live, right? They're kind of a nuisance. They get in the way of, of things. This is kind of what the general population of culture says, but Jesus actually says that children are a blessing from the Lord, Jesus, Jesus is the one who actually says, look at all these children. Let them come up on my lap. I want to I cuddle with them. I want to snuggle with them. I want to let them know that I love them. Right? These, are, these are just a few places where culture, culture's truth and Jesus' truth are very much opposed to each other. But if our culture doesn't see Jesus as the prophet, as the true speaker, then, then who's our, who does our culture say that Jesus is? I think, actually, I think our confession did a bang-up job on showing us what our culture thinks Jesus is. We think we often reduce Jesus down to this helper buddy, 
right? We think Jesus is, is my homeboy. He's my personal assistant. He's looking out for me. And I can go to him when I'm in a pinch. He can get me out of my speeding ticket. He can help me ace this test. He can do whatever he wants. If I just turn to him and he can help me out. And at the, at, if you boil this down at the, at the base of it, I think what culture wants from Jesus is just to see him as this guy who's there. He's there for us. He's beside us. And he's just going to tell us, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Right? I, think I think that's culture's perception of who Jesus is. But both our culture and even Jesus' culture back then have a very narrow view, a, a, a small understanding of who Jesus is. These are parts, right? These are truths, small truths of who Jesus is, but there's so much more to that. So this shows us that we can't rely on popular opinion, popular poll to tell us who Jesus is. We actually have to go and hear Jesus tell us who he is for himself, right? We have to listen to his word. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, the guys who have been with him for all this time now as he's been in ministry, and he asked them this question um, in verse 29. And he asked them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Now, I think this is an interesting question. It's interesting because of the wording. It's who do you say I am? It's not who do you feel I am or who do you think I am? It's who do you say that I am? And I find this interesting because I've been working my way very slowly through a couple of essays um, written by the author and poet Wendell Berry. And one that I've, I've just recently read was called Standing by Words. And in this essay, he argues that when we, when we put words on something, when we ascribe something with words, that those words have significant meaning, right? There's a lot of meaning to those words because when we put words on something, it shows what we truly believe about something in our heart of hearts. It shows uh, uh, our deepest thoughts, our deepest opinions, or, or whatever it is. It, it shows that, that that's what we, what we believe about something, but it also calls us to stand by what we say. That we have to, like if we call something black, we actually have to believe that it's black. You know, if we see some, call something white, we have to believe that it's white, right? So our words also call for us to stand by them and mean what we say. So when, when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? I think he's asking us, but, but who, what, what do you believe about me in your heart of hearts? Like deep down inside, what's your truest opinion? What's your truest understanding of me? And, and can you stand by that? Will you, will you stand by that? And Peter, uh, like the class know-it-all, who who's blurts out the answer before anyone else can raise their hand, Peter goes, well, you're the, you're the Christ, right? Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. And, and in Matthew's gospel, this is actually affirmed. Jesus says, Peter, blessed are you, for God has revealed this to you. So Jesus affirms Peter's answer. But what does it mean to be the Christ? right? We call him Jesus Christ. Did, did Jesus just get, pick up a new last name? Did Jesus get a new nickname? What, what's, the, what's the deal with this Christ thing? But Christ means Messiah or anointed one. This is, this is an identity thing. It's not a, a name. It's, it's who he is, the, the offices that he fulfills. And in, in the Old Testament, there are three offices, three we call them officers, three positions that someone is anointed into. Because this is, that's the key, the anointed one, the one who's, who's been anointed to do something on behalf of God. And those three things are this. And actually, I've got a slide for this. You want to put that up? That uh, the prophets are anointed to speak God's truth, 
right? These prophets call for change. There's the priests who are anointed into the office of priests who, who are to mediate between God and man. And the, these, these anointed ones, the anointed priests, call people into worship. And then the king is also anointed, right? He's in, anointed into his office to rule according to God's ways. And he calls for obedience, to live like this. So those are the three offices that, that uh, when, when it talks about being anointed, that, that the Old Testament refers to. But when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, he's thinking king, that Jesus is the king, the anointed king. And it's easy to see why, especially if we keep moving in through chapter 8 and through the rest of Mark's account, Peter's thinking that Jesus is the king. And, and it's easy to see why Jesus has been using kingdom language ever since he came on the scene. Jesus is saying, this is why I've come, to preach the good news about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about the kingdom of God using parables. He's been showing people about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God looks like through his miracles. And he's actually, Jesus is actually speaking with authority like, king, like a king would, right? So Peter thinks, Peter thinks that, oh, Jesus must be the anointed king. But when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, he gets it. Like Jesus affirms, yes, I am the Christ. But Peter gets it, but he doesn't get it, you know? He gets part of it, but he doesn't understand the wholeness of it. Um, he's partially right, where, where Peter thinks, yeah, Jesus is the king, and, and the crowds are saying, well, Jesus is the prophet, and so they're, they're both partially right. Jesus doesn't correct any of the views, but, but they're not seeing Jesus as the priest, right? They see him as a king, they see him as a prophet, but, but the priest, but Jesus is actually going to show us, and he's going to take the rest of, of Mark's gospel to show us that he's actually prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. And this is what our, our professions of faith have been teaching us over the last couple of weeks, that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. It's not either one, one or the other, but he's all three of those, prophet, priest, and king. And what people are seeing in Jesus' time, and I think what we have, have the, the issue with too, is not seeing Jesus as fulfill all three of these offices. And I, I say that it's like, well, I don't know what it means to see Jesus as a prophet. I don't know what it means to see Jesus as a priest or the king. It's kind of, it's kind of out there language right now. But, but I, I want to kind of bring it in and show us what it means to actually see uh, Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And, and what I want to show you is that there's great danger that if we eliminate one or the other, we, we run into error. That if we don't see Jesus as the priest, we won't worship Jesus. If we don't see Jesus as the king, we won't obey him. We won't live the best life possible. And if we don't see Jesus as the prophet, we'll ignore what he says, and true change, true heart change, will become impossible. So this is what this means. Some of us, like myself, this is where I find myself aligning often, is we see Jesus as the prophet, right? The one who, who speaks God's truth and we can see Jesus as the king who rules according to God's ways. He tells us how to live, but we don't see Jesus as the merciful priest who helps us and who takes away our sins, right? And so what we're left with is this picture of Jesus sitting up on the throne, wagging his finger at us. He's saying, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. Well, you, you fell short here, you should have done better here. And so we're left with this Jesus on the throne that's wagging his finger. And, and when we see Jesus like this, what happens is it, it drives us into a life of performance. Like where, okay, if I'm not 
if I'm not doing well, like I need to try better, right? I need, I need, to, I need to make God happy with me. So I, I'm going to do this better. I'm going to do this better. I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps straps and just go for it. I'm going to try my hardest. And basically what this, this performance mindset is, is it's just a sophisticated version of legalism where we think that if I obey, if I do what's right, if I, if I avoid sin, then God will accept me, right? And here's the thing. Uh, if, if you can kind of uh, associate with this, if, if this uh, strikes a chord with you, uh, having to feel like feeling like you need to perform, try to be better for God or for acceptance, for whether it be God or others, then this is what you need to know. That you can't be close to Jesus if you're trying to prove yourself. You can't be close to Jesus if you're trying to prove yourself. There's no time for it, because if you're putting all your energy, all your, all your you know, emotional capital, everything into trying to prove yourself, you're not gonna have any time to worship Jesus, right? Worship doesn't make sense because I've got to perform, perform, perform. Flannery O'Connor in one of her short stories uh, is, explains one of her characters like this. It says, There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What's she saying here? She's saying the the way to avoid the finger-wagging Jesus, the Jesus who tells us what to do and what not to do and that he's not happy with us and we need to try better, is to try to be a good person, to avoid falling short, right? To hide our weaknesses. And if we do so, then, then maybe we'll be accepted. But the thing with this is that um, when we're trying to avoid the finger, finger wagging Jesus and be a good person, um, we'll always fail at some point, right? Well, actually, one of two things happen. We, we either fail, uh, we try and fail, try and fail, try and fail, and it just becomes this pattern of failure, and we're eventually driven into despair, where it's like, well, I can't do anything right, so why should I even try? Or on the other end, we're we're kind of puffed up with pride, right? Oh, I, I, I'm doing a good job of following Jesus. I'm doing a good job of obeying. I'm do, doing the right things. And eventually we, we convince ourselves that, well, I don't, I don't think I really need a savior because I'm not that bad, right? I, you know, Jesus, you know, he, he tells me how to live, but I can, I can live like that myself. I don't need his help to do so. And what this is, it does, it pu- puffs us up with pride, and, and despair and pride both keep us from worshiping Jesus. So then, if this is us, if, if we see Jesus as the prophet and the king, and we have a hard time seeing him as a priest, well, what do we, what do we need to do? How do we fix this? Well, what we need to do is we need to look at Jesus and draw near to the side of Jesus the priest to see how deeply he cares for us. He's not an angry God wagging his finger at us. He cares for us. He, he cares so much for us that he laid down his life for us. And he stands before God as our priest. He not only mediates between us so he can communicate with God, but Jesus stands before God in our place, taking on the wrath and the anger of God for our sins, the obvious sins that we commit, the, the sins that we, we commit when we're doing the right thing or the good thing, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. And he stands before us taking the anger and the wrath of God for the, for the sins of, of things that we should have done, that we could have done, but we didn't do. So Jesus stands there in our place and God's wrath is poured out on him instead of us. 
right? So, so now Jesus, the priest, isn't just a mediator, but Jesus becomes the mediator who sacrifices himself, right? That Jesus is the priest that lays himself down on the altar and becomes the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So now it's not my performance or how well I live that pleases God. It's completely based on Jesus's perfect sacrifice, that he was everything that I'm not. And so when we see Jesus as this perfect sacrifice, as the one who pleases God, then this frees me up. This, this removes that performance mindset. So it's not my performance, but Jesus' performance that earns me God's favor. It allows me to, to come before God and to worship him. And so here's the thing, that when your righteousness rides on Christ's shoulders and not your own, that is when you can actually worship Jesus. So it's when we see Jesus as our prophet, the prophet who lays down his life for us, that we can see, uh, see him correctly and, and worship him truly. But that's not the only mistake that we make. We can, we can see Jesus as our, our um, well, you want to skip to a couple slides there? Yep, so this one. So, uh, so where we, we see Jesus as the prophet, and we see Jesus as the priest, but we don't see Jesus as our king. And, and so what happens is, is we say, oh, yes, 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 I like what Jesus says. Like, he says some good stuff. I like that. And I, I like that he forgives me of my sins. But this whole thing about listening to Jesus tell me how to my, live my life, I'm, I'm not so keen on that, right? So we kind of push Jesus the king to the outside. And so what happens is on Sunday mornings, we come in and we lift our hands and we say, Jesus is Lord. Right? But as soon as we get to the bedroom or we get to our checkbook or we get to our calendar, it's, it's no longer Jesus is Lord. It's I am Lord. I'm the one who controls my life. I get to l- dictate the way I live. We, we have this mantra that echoes um, that, that famous poem, how it ends re- Invictus, where it says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the mindset that we get when we dismiss Jesus as the king. We see Jesus telling us how to live, but he said, well, I, I don't like that. I want to sleep with who I want to sleep with. I want, I want to spend my money the way I want to spend my money. Well, we even say, Jesus is the prophet who tells me that, that uh, I'm a sinner. Like, okay, I can, I can get with that. You know, we, we see Jesus as the one who gives us forgiveness, but we refuse to forgive others. We hold others in unforgiveness. Or we see Jesus, like we can say, oh yeah, Jesus was the humble servant who went to the cross for me, but still, we're, we're not humble people. It's like, oh yeah, that humility thing, that's just really not for me. Right? When we, when we live like that, we're determining the way that we want to live instead of letting Jesus tell us how to live. And what this does when we see Jesus as prophet and priest, but not as king, this leads us to hypocrisy, right? It leads us to be divided by what we say and by what we do. We're inconsistent, right? That's what, what it means to be a hypocrite. We're inconsistent people. And James, in his epistle, he, he commands us to let your yes be yes and to let your no be no, right? He's saying, mean what you say, kind of echoing what I was telling you about with Wendell Berry in, that, in his essay, Mean what you say. And he says, mean what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he goes on to say, so that you will not fall under condemnation. Right? It's, 
It's our inconsistency of what we profess with our mouth and how we live that leads us into condemnation, right? This is serious. None of us want to be condemned. So then how do we, how do we avoid condemnation? If, this is, if you're kind of in this camp, it's like, yeah, I get prophet, I get the priest, but it's hard for me to submit my life to Jesus as my king, then how do we grow into this? Well, some people might say, well, you just need to obey Jesus better. Like, you just need to buckle down and do it. Get those white knuckles, hold on, and, and do it. But I don't, I don't think that's helpful. I think if we just change our behavior, that's not really going to bring any sort of long-term change. So, so how do we do it? We need to draw near to Jesus the King. We need to see him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's over all creation and commands the stars to be where they're at. He's the one who, who spoke creation into being. He's the one in, in Mark's gospel who commands the wind and the waves. We need to see him as that powerful king, but we also need to see him as the loving king, right? As the king who loves us deeply, who cares for us. The, the king who, out of love for the Father, God the Father, and out of love for us, his people, was willing to humble himself and become like us. Where he, and as a human, as, as Jesus the God-man, he obeyed the will of God perfectly. Even in the difficult times, even when he could have gone and done his own thing, Jesus submitted to the will of God, even to the point of death. And the thing about Jesus' obedience, what we have to see is that Jesus' obedience flowed out of love. It came from love, out of love for the Father, out of, out of his love for us. And so what we need to see is, is that, that Jesus loves us deeply. He loves the Father deeply. We need to be captivated by this love, to look at the king who left his throne, who left the riches of heaven, to come after us and to rescue us, just like we professed earlier today from Morning Star Catechism. That he's the king that rescues us, who, who sweeps us up off our feet. And out of, just like Jesus' loving obedience, that we also must have obedience that comes from love. That, that it's God who first loved us so that we can love him. And it's, it's God who poured his love into Christ, who pours his love into us so that we can respond in a loving way. And the way that we love God is to obey his commands. John, 1 John 5, 3 says this, that this is love for God. This is what love for God looks like, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. This means, like, when we see Jesus as a king, the loving king, we see that Jesus commands us in love. Like, he, he's giving us commandments that are, that are only loving. Nothing's holding us back from living a better life, right? Jesus' commandments are not meant to limit us or to burden us. But Jesus, the commandments that Jesus gives us are to help us to flourish, right? To live the best life we can. And, and when we see Jesus as the king who left the riches of heaven, the power of heaven to rescue us, his people, like Jesus, the king, is going to have our affections. He's going to have our allegiance. We're going, to be, we're going to be devoted to him. And obedience will flow from our love for him. So that's what we got to do. If, if we want to see Jesus as the king, we need to see him as the loving king. But that's not the only error, right? The next error that we run into is when we see Jesus as the, the priest. You can go to the next slide. Uh, we see Jesus as the priest, and we see Jesus as the king, but we don't see Jesus as the prophet. 
And this, this is a view that's increasing. As, as the Christian church or as churches across America move more toward the liberal end of the spectrum, as more and more people kind of drift towards a liberal theology, this is what happens. Where we see Jesus as the prophet, who, or excuse me, Jesus as the priest who's with us no matter what, right? And we see Jesus as the king who tells us how to make the world a better place, but we don't see is Jesus the prophet who, who speaks God's truth and he calls for us to change. He doesn't convict us of our sin. And what these people say when they say Jesus as the priest and Jesus as the king, well, they say, well, Jesus, the, the stuff that he said is just too narrow-minded. It's just too hard to swallow. He said too many different difficult things, right? Excuse me, Right? We say it's outdated, it's, it's not relevant anymore. Like Jesus' truth has, has expired. And, and the danger with this is, is we wanna take the Jesus who has rough edges, and, and we know, like we'll see in the next chunk of scripture where Jesus calls Peter Satan, uh, and, and other passages that we've seen before and coming up, we see that Jesus actually has rough edges. Like Jesus isn't this smooth and shiny stone, right, that, that we can kind of hold in our hand. Like, He's a stone that will cut us, right? Sometimes, sometimes that's what he's got to do. But Jesus actually did say offensive things. He said things that are uncomfortable. And so what, what this mind, like where someone falls in this, this thing where Jesus is king and he's priest, well, I want to stand off the rough, rough edges. I want to get rid of the uncomfortable things. I want to get rid of the things that Jesus says that might be offensive. And the problem with that is when we, when we make this sort of Jesus, the problem is that Jesus becomes a yes man. He becomes a yes man to everything we think and feel because we don't allow him to push back on us. We don't let him convict us of our sin, to call sin, sin. And because of that, because we don't let him call sin, sin, we can't be changed, right? We're we're resistant to his change. We're left with hard hearts that have a hard time understanding why Jesus would say some of the hard things he would say. We're left with, with... our mind not understanding, our heart not understanding why Jesus would have to go and die such an offensive death on the cross. This is what it leads to when we don't see Jesus as the prophet. So then, how do we, how do we move past this? How do we get the right view of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king? Well, if this is where your mind or your heart or your life drifts toward naturally, then what we need to do is, once again, we need to draw close to Jesus, the prophet. We have to hear what he says, we have to hear what he's saying, and we have to receive it into our hearts. And Jesus is saying what what all the other prophets that came before him said, right? Jesus is saying the same exact thing, where he's saying, you have a sin problem. You're a sinner. Like, people don't like to be called a sinner, you have a sin problem and you're at odds with God. You're, you're opposed to God. So that's what all the prophets said. And, and all the other prophets came and they went. And, and, and sometimes when they would say something, people would turn back in faith. They repent of their sin and, and come back to God. But eventually they just drift away. These prophets could declare truth, but the, their, so the, their truth couldn't actually change people at the core. But Jesus... Jesus is the prophet who can actually bring permanent change, right? He doesn't just call us to change, it's through him we change. He's not just the proclaimer of the truth, he he himself is the truth. 
when Jesus is praying uh, in John 17, 17, he's praying to, to God the Father and he's saying, sanctify them. And what that means is he's saying, change us, change my people to look like me so that we would look more like Jesus. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus is praying. And we know um, if you're down with 1 John, uh, or John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and it goes on to say, then the word became flesh and lived among us. Jesus is actually this word that changes us. He's saying, I am the truth that changes us. Just like he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus is the prophet who brings change. But how? How does Jesus change us? He continues in John 17, he said that I've, I've consecrated myself, and that means I've, I've set myself apart. Specifically, I've set myself apart for the cross. I've set myself apart, I've consecrated myself that they may be sanctified in truth, that they may be changed in me. He's saying that, that the truth I proclaim, Jesus the prophet, the truth that Jesus proclaims is actually get, gonna get himself killed so that he can change sinners to saints, so he can change enemies of God to friends of God, so he can change orphans into sons and daughters of God. Jesus says, I'm gonna change you through myself. And this change happens on the cross where Jesus, we're told Jesus is put up on the cross and, and in that moment on the cross, all of our sin, that Jesus becomes sin, all of our sin, all of, all of the flaws, all the character flaws, all of our imperfections, all of our inconsistencies, everything bad about us, everything we despise is put upon him. And in the great exchange, Martin Luther calls this the great exchange where we actually receive Jesus' righteousness. So he takes all the bad stuff and we're credited with everything good about Jesus, everything that's desirable. We are called righteous now because of Jesus and his work on the cross. This is how Jesus changes us. He had to die in order for us to change, in order to bring long-term permanent change. And because we know that Jesus is willing to take our sin and give us his righteousness, this makes us people who are eager to repent. When we hear Jesus telling us that's sinful, we're eager to, to say, oh, you're right, Jesus. That is sinful. This is not glorifying you. This is, this is about me. This is about me glorifying me. So we, we're eager to repent. We're eager to re humble ourselves. We're, we're comfortable admitting our failures and being called out, right? This is what it means to see Jesus as a prophet because he's not just a prophet who says, you're doing the wrong thing. He's the prophet that says, you're doing the wrong thing and in order to change you, I'm gonna die, right? This is the gospel. That Jesus, that Jesus is the prophet who proclaims truth calls us to change, and he's the way that we change. Jesus is the priest, right, who, who mediates for us between uh, uh, us and God, but he's also the sacrifice that the priest lays down on the altar. Jesus is the king who rules and reigns in all creation, but he's the king that loves us, and he rules out of love for us, right? This is the gospel. And it's when we see Jesus as the prophet who calls us to change, right, we, when we see him as this prophet who, who changes us through his death on the cross, he actually changes us. He said, the old has passed away. The old self has passed away and the new has come, that, that we become a new person. This is regeneration. Our hearts get a new heartbeat, right, because of, of what Jesus has done, the prophet has done. 
So those are the ways that, that we don't see Jesus accurately. And, and let me tell you, that when, typically when, when you preach on prophet, priest, and king, typically uh, uh, preachers have the opportunity to kind of expound uh, at least one sermon for each thing. So I'm, I'm just flying over this. But it's so important for us to see Jesus as the prophet, as a priest, and the king. And, and so the big question is left on the table when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? That's a question that's directed at us. That's for us to answer. Is he your Christ? Is Jesus the prophet, the priest, and the king? Is he the king that you obey out of love? Is he the prophet who you allow to change you at the core of you? Is he the priest who satisfies God on your behalf? Friends, I want to urge you, whether you're a Christian or, or you're not quite there yet, you're, you're not a believer, I want to urge you to see that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. See that he is the prophet who loves you. He's the prophet who loves you enough to tell you that you have a problem. He's the priest who's willing to lay his life down to fix that sin problem. And he's the king who welcomes you into his family and who calls you a royal son or daughter. And and then just like any good dad does, he teaches us the best way to live because he loves us. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to see him as prophet, priest, and king. we're, We're not... If we're not seeing Jesus as all three, we're, we're becoming disciples of a, a weird Jesus, not, not the real Jesus. We need to see the real Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. This means that as disciples, we increasingly worship Jesus because it's his work and his work alone that, that we're able to be called righteous, right? That sin is removed from us and we're called righteous. It's... it's Um, listening to be a disciple is to listen to Jesus, to listen to his word, to listen to the spirit, to hear his gospel, and to be continually changed by that. We don't don't just come to Christ and say, oh, I'm done changing now. All of the changes happened right here in my moment of conversion when I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. This is a continual thing where we continue to be changed by Jesus. And and as we continually are changed by Jesus, what's gonna happen is we're going to increasingly submit all of our life to the lordship of Jesus, to Jesus the king, right? We're gonna walk in his ways out of love and delight because we know that the king loves us enough to show us the best way to live. That he was willing to leave his throne in order to make us part of his family. And honestly, like, nobody does this right. Nobody, nobody, nobody can say, I always see Jesus perfectly as prophet, priest, and king. Like nobody sees Jesus right. This is why it's so important for us to, to be in community with people, to open up our lives to the places where someone can say, you know what? It doesn't look like you're walking in obedience here. It doesn't look like you're seeing the love that Jesus has for you and you're not responding in loving obedience. It takes someone to look into our life and say, I, Do you not hear what Jesus is trying to convict you of? Do you not see that he's trying to call you to something higher? This is why we have 
to live in community together. We have to open up all of our lives to one another. I'm not saying we, all of us need to be all involved with everybody's life at the same time. Like Jesus calls us to a people within a missional community, within our fight clubs. And so if you're not in a fight club, if you're not in a missional community, I want to encourage you to get in one, right? This is for your discipleship so that, so that you can grow in the faith to look more like Jesus, grow in your understanding as Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. If, if, you're, if you're looking for a, a missional community, there's a, a bulletin board out in the entryway. I want you to take a look at, I mean, you can probably grab almost anybody in this room and say, hey, how do I get involved in a missional community? And they can probably point you in the right direction, right? It's so important for us to open up our lives and to see um, to help each other, actually, to, to be disciples, to make disciples who make disciples. This is my, the last thing here. Like, we must, we must see Jesus as the Christ, right? We must see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, because when we do, we'll worship Jesus. When we see Jesus as the Christ, we will uh, uh, continuously be changed by Jesus, when we see Jesus as Christ the King, we'll, we'll delightfully obey him. Right? This, is, this is what we're called to. This is what the gospel does. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing your son to us in this way as prophet, priest, and king. Even, even though the crowds didn't get it, even though our society doesn't get it, um, you, through the resurrection, through all of your word, through the Holy Spirit, you show us. You open our eyes to see. You open our ears to hear. You soften our heart so that we can change. And Lord God, I ask that you would do those things. Help us to see Jesus accurately, to see him as the prophet who, who calls us to truth, who calls us to change, but, but also the prophet who changes us. To see him as the priest who intercedes for us, who mediates between us and God, but he's, he's also the, prophet, or the priest who lays down his life as a sacrifice so that your wrath is satisfied and you are pleased with us. Help us to see him as the king who loves us so deeply that he would get off his throne and bring us into his kingdom. Would you help us to see Jesus that way? Would you put people around us uh, to help us walk in this way? Lord God, we, we rely on you for these things, we can't change ourselves. We, we rely on your spirit to bring these things about, and we ask, Lord, that you would do so. Would you, would you change us to be more like you? And in doing so, we'll find a great delight. We'll find a great delight in being near, near you and worshiping you. We'll find a great delight in being changed by you to be more like Jesus, and we'll find a great delight in knowing how much you love us and, and how much uh, you care for us to rule us in a loving way. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.